Good morning. You doing all right? Yeah? No? Not sure? Hey, today we start our study in the book of Revelation. Yeah? Everybody say Revelation, not Revelation. Say Revelation. You know why? It's because it's actually the revelation of Jesus, right? Somehow we think it's the revelations. It's not. There's only one revelation. <laughs> it's Jesus. Listen, we're doing something unique this year, or this, this series for our study, is we, want it, we know that oftentimes in the middle of a, a study on a Sunday, there's often questions and wondering what in the world that meant or whatever. So, so we want to create an opportunity for you on Wednesday nights throughout this study uh, for an opportunity for us, to, for you to come back to the church on Wednesday night and have a little bit of a further in-depth study and time to ask questions. So, Kari, can you come up a little bit more and tell us a little bit about what that class will look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have, yeah, so Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. We are going to be coming back here together over in the discipleship classroom. And there's no need to sign up, but we want to be able to explore things a little bit deeper. Um, it's going to be happening. This is a four-week study. We're going to be meeting actually three times this week. And then the week after that, it's Valentine's Day. So we are not meeting for obvious reasons. And then again, twice at the end of the month. And we're going to be talking about some of those more in-depth questions. If you have questions, feel free to bring them. I don't promise we're going to have the answers because if you studied the book of Revelation before, you know it's pretty vast, it's pretty specific, and sometimes it can be pretty confusing. But we hope in this time that we'll be able to get a little bit deeper into those things. We're going to have a number of people teaching. My husband, Elisha, and I are going to be at every class doing some of that teaching. This week, Pastor Lance will be there, bringing some of more of his research, um, getting a little bit more into that. And we're going to be able to talk with one another. So there's no need to sign up. Just come this Wednesday night not next Wednesday, and then the Tuesday and Wednesdays after that, there will be class, and we hope to see you there. Awesome. Thank you. It's going to be fun. Revelation. It's also known as the apocalypse or the apocalypsis, which literally means the unfolding of. Literally the unfolding of the message of Jesus to the world. I think the book of Revelation, if there's one thing I've, I've learned in my study, uh, not just this last week, but so on and so forth, and over the years of ministry, is that there are a lot of opinions on this book. Come on, there are a lot of opinions, some weirder than others. Right? In fact, I found, in fact, it's kind of interesting, I found that the people who, who primarily just teach in the book of Revelation are more weird than the people who don't. And I'm like, because I'm telling you, when, when you just focus on, it's kind of like looking at an elephant and just focusing on the trunk, right? You have to look at the whole message, which is the whole scripture, right? There's so much. In fact, I really believe that the understanding to the book of Revelation really takes place when you understand more of what happened in the Old Testament. Because when you see the Old Testament, the New Testament makes sense. I think there's too many of us that decide, I'm going to camp on this book, or I'm going to live in that book, but I'm not going to live in the rest of it. Let me tell you this. The Bible itself says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? So memorize that. I'm telling you, right? It's important that you know that all Scripture is God-breathed. The book of Revelation is no different. But I think the understanding of the book of Revelation makes a lot more sense in the context of the entirety of the Bible. If you just take the book of Revelation at itself and read it and live in it for a while, you'll come up with weird conclusions. You'll try to wonder what in the world God, the God who has the Holy Spirit, but the book of Revelation said he is the seven spirits of God, and what it is that he's standing, being surrounded by lampstands that are symbolic of a church, 
with the head of a lion that spits out fire with four faces on the head. I mean, it's just there's all kinds of crazy creatures in there. How many of you have ever attempted to read the book of Revelation? Right? Successfully, <laughs> right? You get into that thing and you're just like, how many read through it and you're just like, huh, I'm staying out of this book, right? Because there's just a lot. Let, let me tell you the thing I love about Revelation is that the longer you look at any part of the Bible, the more it's intended to make sense. And the more God will begin to unravel that for you. I love the Bible. There's nothing I'm afraid to teach you about in the Bible because I believe that the Bible, God wants us to understand it. Now know this, the book of Revelation was actually written specifically to a specific group of people at one point in history. In other words, the writer of the book of Revelation intended for the readers to understand it. He didn't intend to confuse people. He didn't intend to try to hope that somehow they would just get some little nuance of something. His goal was to teach them so that they would understand. Now, the book of Revelation was written by John. John was one of the disciples who walked with Jesus. In fact, I believe it's the same John that was the the one whom Jesus loved, John. That one that's written of in his own book. As John was describing his relationship to Jesus, he said, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. And I think that God intentionally chose John to write this. Now, John writes this book of Revelation in a place called the Island of Patmos. Patmos was an island out there in the middle of the sea that, um, not in the middle, but off the side of the, I think it was the Aegean Sea or in the sea out there. Anyway, in in that process, he, he was banished or exiled to that island. Now, understand something. You ever heard of the, the roads in Rome? In, in Rome, the, the, There are hundreds of miles of roads in Rome. Most of those roads were paved with rocks from the island of Patmos. Patmos was basically a big gravel pit. And people were banished there to cut rocks and make roads. That was their whole job, to cut rocks, put them on boats, float them back to Rome, make roads. Literally, it's what they did. So when you were banished to the island of Patmos, you weren't there just with a you know, sitting in there on the beach. You were there because you were, you were going to be banished to do work forever. Why did John end up on the island of Patmos? Good question. John ended up on the island of Patmos because the emperor at that time named Domitian. Domitian was a guy who was quite threatened by these people called Christians. There were people who were, uh, at that time, just before this emperor was in place. There was another emperor named Nero. Nero was the guy who, who basically lit the city of Rome on fire and then blamed it on Christians, and massive persecution takes place. This other guy takes over. This Domitian, he's a guy who took over, and he was just as bad as Nero. He got mad at John because John starts sharing, sharing the gospel with people, and people start getting saved. Domitian now John at this point was one, of the, was one of the disciples. John was one of the last disciples to remain living the longest. But John, at this particular point, it was probably AD 93 or something like that. John is, is now sharing his faith really publicly. Domitian gets threatened and says, you now are going to be killed. Domitian, this is what historians tell us, Tertullian, Josephus, these different historians that are not biblical historians. They're just historians, so it's not Bible fact, but it's historical fact in as much as the fact that you believe George Washington or Abraham Lincoln existed. These are historians that wrote this. They wrote that John was sentenced to be martyred in the Colosseum in Rome. When they put him out into the Colosseum, Domitian said he was going to kill him and make sure he stayed dead. (laughs) He put a big, huge, boiling vat of oil in the middle of the Colosseum and put John inside of it. Historians tell us that John stood in the middle of the cauldron of boiling oil 
unscathed. Hopped out. Domitian got so freaked out that he said, you are being empowered by an evil spirit and sentenced him to life on Patmos. He thought he was, he thought he was getting rid of John, but really John was getting the revelation while on the island of Patmos. That's the setting. There was this horrible hatred towards Christians. The Roman government hated them. They didn't like anything about them from Nero to Domitian. There's all this craziness going on. And so all that to say, he's now on the island of Patmos, gets a letter. He gets, he, he gets a, a, a message through an angel by the Holy Spirit to write this revelation of Jesus to the world. Now, the book of Revelation is filled with signs, symbols, and stories. Signs, symbols, and stories. Now remember, the first century reader was intended to understand this. You know, it's kind of funny because they, they used language like we use language. For example, if I were to say, read some of the symbols and signs and stories that we will through the book of Revelation, at first blush, you'll say to yourself, that doesn't make any sense. But when you understand the context of culture, and remember, the book of Revelation needs to be anchored in context. You need to read the scripture in context. If not, you'll create a cult. All right? It's got to be absolutely anchored in context that we can understand. In other words, there was a certain people at a certain time in a certain place. Right? When you understand that, then you'll see how it applies to you. The book of Revelation was actually written as a circular letter. Its point was to be circulated throughout the planet so that you and I receive the same message. Listen to this. Because it was supposed to be understood at one point in history, uh, we might not understand what those symbols and signs and stories were about, but any more than they might understand this sentence. If we were going, so if I write this sentence down, sometimes when we read the book of Revelation, we get lost in the tall weeds, can't see the forest through the trees, often get sidetracked, and start heading down the wrong runway and end up on a dead-end street. Now, you and I understand what that couple sentences meant. Tall weeds, forced through the trees, sidetracked, wrong runway, dead-end road. But you see, 200 years from now, those statements may not make sense to anyone. See, the first century reader would have said, I know what you're alluding to, John. You're talking about a story out of the book of Daniel. I know where you're going with that, John. You're talking about something connected to the book of Isaiah. See, they, by the way, you realize that the New Testament Christians right here, these guys that, that are, were written to, you know they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All they had was the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. They didn't, get, they didn't have the New Testament at that point. It was being written, right? So, it's first century intention. Now listen, what was the point the purpose behind the book of Revelation. Two words. Write this down. Two words. The purpose of the book of Revelation. We win. Come on. Glory. We win, right? That's good news. I guess the real question is, are you part of we? <laughs> are you part of the we or the part of they? That's You've got to answer that yourself. But are you a we or a they? Right? We win. That's the whole message of the book of Revelation. That there's this end time moment where there's going to be this really big battle, Armageddon, and the craziness goes on with the two prophets that show up and tell truth and die and they come back to life. And you just realize there's all kinds of stuff. We're going to do our best to slow the train down and take it in small chunks. But this was written to be understood. Let me tell you what the book of Revelation is not. Please listen to this. 
The book of Revelation is not a secret predictive code that God is waiting for us to decipher for him to somehow then unveil the end time process. It is not a predictive, secret predictive code that God's waiting for us to decipher. It was intended for us to understand. God intended for the first century churches to get this message and go, I know where you're going with this, John. Where, where, where we write movies and books and craziness and say like, well, uh, you know, there are things that we don't understand and there are things that we do understand, but I just want you to know God intended the Bible to be understood. Someone say amen. There we go. I'm not so convinced that everyone believes that, but I know it's true. The book of Revelation was written to, uh, like I said, a circular letter to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor. Seven churches. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ. God gave him concerning the events that will happen soon. An angel was sent to, John's, to, to God's servant, John, so that John could share the revelation with God's servants. John was faithfully reported the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Everything he saw. God blesses the one who reads this prophecy to the church and blesses all who listen to it and obey what it says. For a time is near when these things will happen. John uses the number seven all over this book. It shows up in seven bowls and seven spirits and seven lampstands. It shows up all over the place. Seven. What is seven? Seven. There's a whole ology out there. The word ology means the study of. There's a whole study or group of people called numerology that study numbers and what it's all about. And and I tell you this, I don't know much, I don't know anything about numerology except the number seven has at its core meaning a number of completeness or, or, or finality or some sort of wholeness to it. The number seven, when you hear the number seven, it means more than just the number seven. Oftentimes it means the totality or the completeness. The, the, this prophecy written to the seven churches was literally, hey, your wife's over there. So the, literally, the, the <laughs> couldn't help. She was waving, he wasn't looking. This prophecy was written in such a manner that it was there a complete message. The whole message was to be given and understood in its totality. Though there were seven messages given to seven churches, in its wholeness, there's one message given to one church. We are part of the one church. As we read through the study of each of the seven churches, you're going to find representation of yourself in probably one or several of the churches. Hmm. Seven. Why does number seven mean completeness? Uh, any more than with something in our culture, when we say something's complete, well, we don't use the number seven and say, well, that's like a seven. We say things like this. We say like, um, that's all she wrote. Or ta-da. Or bada-bing, bada-boom. Right? We say those kind of things to imply finito. Right? Done. We say those words at the end of a sentence and, and everybody in our culture goes, oh, that's it. She's a singing. That means it's done, right? It's over with. In as much as when back in that culture they would say something was seven, they were trying to say there was completeness. So the point of this is Jesus is literally trying to tell us through John that the message given here was a complete revelation of Jesus given to the church to be circulated to the church. You, my brothers and sisters, are the church. Listen to me closely. This letter was written to churchy people. When you read the book of Revelation and you see the 
accusations of things that were happening, you will be so tempted to say, oh, those people out there. Jesus was writing to the church because the church are us in here. I love it. John saw things that he was given to say that he had never seen or experienced before. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says this, Look, he comes in the clouds of heaven, and everyone, everyone say everyone, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the earth will weep because of him. Yes, amen. Wait a minute. John writes this, first century, not knowing how in the world Jesus is going to be seen by everyone at one time, from the people who hung him on the cross to now. How could Jesus possibly be seen by everyone at one time? Either this is a tremendous lie, or, or maybe there's something here, right? So can't you just tell you this? Don't overthink it. But I can tell you this, within the last 100 years, this prophetic word actually now starts to make sense in the light of television and the internet. I don't know if that's the case, but I can tell you, Jesus can show up and we all can see him anyway, but I can tell you, if something happens somewhere over there, we can find it over here in a snap. Only time in history that, that, that things could reach their, their apex or their fulfillment more than any other time now. Could it be that we are approaching or in the midst of or coming near the end of times? Yes. Hey, my friends, let me tell you this. Take these words to heart. They're written to you. Amen. Please read this book. Go in your Bible app, hit play, listen to this book. Get it in you. Create questions. Underst- Let me tell you this. You, by the way, he said you're going to be blessed if you read it or listen to it. He didn't say you're going to be blessed if you understand it. Right? So just, just read it. I'll do my best to help you understand it. Right? We may not get all the answers, but we're going to get you something. Right? We'll try to figure out how this goes. I love this. So John writes to seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. I love this. Keep in mind, when, I, when you read the Old Test, or the New Testament, the New Testament, I believe, makes more sense in the context of the Old Testament. I said that before. You have to have both, right? The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's gotta, it helps to make more sense. For example, John writes and says, you will be blessed if you read this book, Right? Jeremiah, the prophet that we've been studying, the book of Lamentations before this. Remember when I said about Lamentations, the reason they were lamenting was because no one listened to Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah just before. Jeremiah said, hey, stop it. Don't do that. Try this. Make sure you do that. Stay away from this, but do this. Don't do this and do this. All of that stuff Jeremiah wrote, they all looked at him and said, neener, neener, I'll do it my own way and thumbed their nose at the prophet and ended up out of their blessing and in captivity. That's why, they were in, that's why they were in Lamentations was written, because they were mourning about the fact that they didn't listen. Can I tell you the book of Revelation is a revelation prophetically of both the things in the past and the things to come. Literally, this is a prophetic warning to you. We are like the people in Jeremiah's time. Here's my question. What will we do? Thumb our nose at the message or say, you know what? That's for me. I must change. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus for us to learn and learn from and change our ways or remain the same way and forfeit our freedom and maybe our promised land. 
I mean heaven. I mean our promise, our maturity, our place like that. I don't know how that all works out, but I can tell you. So let's take a look at the seven churches. I've got to go quickly, unfortunately. The seven churches. The first church spoken to was a church called the Church of Ephesus. Ephesus was known as a loveless church. Revelation 2.2 says this, I know all the things you do. I see the hard work that you do, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. I know you examine the claims of those who say that they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they're liars and you have patiently suffered without quitting. I love this. Jesus literally commends them for five things, being dynamic, dedicated, determined, disciplined, and discerning. He literally says these things that are wonderful that they're doing, these five things. Dynamic, dedicated, determined, disciplined, and discerning. But then he goes on to verse 4. How many know there's always a verse 4? Right? Verse 4 says this. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen from your first love. Turn back to me again and work as you did at first. If you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the church. Literally, Jesus says this. You do all these things right. You say the right things. You discern the right things. You understand the right things. But you've left your first love, me and each other. You've walked away and thought your religion has turned into a bunch of dutiful processes. I come to church, I go to Bible study, and I go home. But I'm still harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart towards my whoever in your life. Hmm. Action to be taken to the church of Ephesus. Return to me and work like you used to. Love others. The church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna was known as the suffering church. Revelations chapter 2.9 says this, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you're rich. I know your slander of those who are opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're really not because theirs is the synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw you into some, to a prison and put you into the test. You'll be persecuted for 10 days, which is also a symbol. Remain faithful even when facing death, and I will give you a crown of life. The Church of Smyrna, the suffering church. Can I tell you this? This was written to the Church of Smyrna. These are people who who were dealing... By the way, this was a church that was being persecuted. Interestingly enough to know that there are two churches of the seven that are being addressed that aren't rebuked at all. Right? All of them are being rebuked except two of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia. These two churches were not being... They didn't get told, hey, stop doing this. What they got told was... Keep in there, hang out, hang in there, you got this, encouraged, right? Why would he tell a persecuted church and not rebuke them at all? I'll tell you why. Because when persecution happens, do you know who leaves your church first? All those who really aren't Christians at all. Let me tell you this, they didn't need to be rebuked because the people who were in the church were already serious about their faith. Here's my question. What happens when persecution begins to hit the church of Tacoma? Will our church grow or shrink? I wonder what will happen when persecution really hits us. Will we run or will we grow? You see, that's what's written to the church of Smyrna. And he was literally saying this. He's like, guys, you think you're poor, but you're rich. You think you got nothing, but you got everything. Hang in there. Be strong. Be faithful. The action to be taken. Remain faithful in the midst of persecution. Can I just remind you of something? The church of Smyrna was going through persecution. They were going through it hard. Let me tell you what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't stop the persecution. Wait a minute. I thought he was a loving God. 
I thought he was a careful God. I thought he cared about me. And he still allowed trial and struggle and persecution? Yes. He actually says in the book of James chapter 5 that literally it's the persecution, the struggle, the suffering that will develop within you a perseverance. Why? Because then you grow up. That's the New Lance translation. (laughs) Church of Pergamum was known as the compromising church. Listen to this. Pergamum was the center of four most important gods of that day. Zeus, Athene, Dionysius, and Asclepius. Zeus was the supreme god at that time. He was the dispenser of all that was good and evil. Athene was the goddess of wisdom. Dionysius was the god of fertility and became the god of wine who looses inhibitions. Then there was Asclepius. Asclepius was known, you might have seen statues, Greek statues of this, this guy. He was a guy who had a serpent running down his leg. And, and literally, it was a mockery of what Moses did in the Old Testament. Asclepius was the god of healing and health and wholeness. And his idea was, is that if you came to this, this place, this literally this, this area of, of Pergamum, that you would find health and healing and wholeness and all that business right, going on. Right? In the Old Testament, remember when, when God said, hold up a serpent, a bronze serpent on a stick? Literally an, a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus wasn't the serpent. Jesus became sin like the serpent. He was lifted up and all those people were healed. Didn't you know? Did you read that? So it's in the Bible, but I'm telling you, so this Asclepius did just the opposite. He put it down his leg to somehow imply that he was the Savior. There was a false message at every level, right? Can I just remind you, Zeus, Athene, Dionysius, Asclepius, this was happening inside the church. This wasn't written to those people out there. There were these people in here that believed that there was another wisdom coming from somewhere, that believed in a goddess of seduction, that believed in some Zeus who was the dispenser of good and evil, who believed in some sort of healing other than the healing that Jesus could give inside the church. Revelation 2.13. I know that city you live in where that great throne of Satan is located, yet you remain loyal to me. You refuse to deny you deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among Satan's followers. And yet I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who are like Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to worship idols by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual sin. In the same way, you have some Nicolaitans among you, people who followed the same teachings and commit the same sin. Repent, he says, or I will come and suddenly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. The action to be taken, turn away from compromise. Thyatira was the fourth church. Thyatira was known as an adulterous church. Thyatira was an interesting church to me. It was a group of people who were the working class people. They were the blue collar people of the day. Thyatira was where the... uh, uh, the, the, the mason stone carvers were, where the woodworkers were, where the, the cloth dyers lived, where the, the bakers and candlestick makers lived. I mean, all that stuff happened there in Thyatira. Thyatira was a place that was known as these blue-collar existence of people that would go and build these fancy temples for all of the uppity-ups in the other cities. Jesus writes through the prophet John here in Revelation to Thyatira, and he says to them this, interestingly enough, he says in Revelations 2.19, I know the things that you do, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see how constant, the constant improvement in all of these things. 
but I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She's encouraging them to worship idols, food offered to idols, to commit sexual sin. I gave her time to repent, and she would not turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her upon a sickbed, and she will suffer greatly to all who commit adultery with her, unless they turn away from all their evil deeds. I will strike her and her children dead. And the churches will know that, listen to this, I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. I will give to each other whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira and those who followed the false teachings, the deeper truths that they call them, but they are depths of Satan, really. I ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. All of these different working class people all had what kind of like we have today. If someone today is an electrician, they go to the union hall to get their job for the next job that they got to pull off, the next job site. If someone's a plumber, they go to the union hall and they get the job, the assignment for the next whatever it is they got to do. A a carpet layer, same thing. They can go to the union hall to whatever it is they got to do and they get their jobs. The same thing was happening here. These people would go to their, they called it the guild or the hall of whatever their craft was that they did cutting rocks, dyeing wool, whatever it was that was going on. And, and, and listen to this. In each of the halls, there were, once a week, these feasts that would happen. And at these feasts, there would be oftentimes an idol that each one of them would worship because it was the thing that gave them the strength to walk out whatever it is craft they did. And somehow, at the end of the day, there would always be some sort of a sexual or sensual uh, thing tied to it. In other words, if you don't worship this Jezebelic kind of thing, you will lose your income. This was written, my friends, to the church. Church people were buying into this whole thing of this sensual idea that if they were going to make it, they had to buy into the sensualness of that time. Now, this Jezebel spoken of could be a real physical Jezebel or it could be a Jezebel that was spoken of back as the wife of Ahab in the Old Testament. Possible, same spirit, different person. I think it was a different person. I think there was a real Jezebel that was alive then that Jesus, inspired John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was told to write about. And he said, there is a woman named Jezebel who's crazy and everyone's buying into her charm. Just like us today. So many of us have bought into this, if you will, a spirit of Jezebel. Turn on your TV, your phone, your computer. It won't take but a second to see sensual something or other showing up, telling you that that's how your economy rolls. And we buy it, listen to it, and we say things to our daughters, like, or our daughters rather say things to us, however you guys pack it out in your world. No, that's just, how, that's just the way the dresses are made today. Uh, trust me, I've had two daughters, and those conversations came up. Honey, that shirt's a little tight. No, Dad, that's just the way they make them. Right? Come on. And I'm telling you, Listen, that's part of the spirit of this age to church people. Here's my question. Are we living it and saying, like, I guess it is? This was written to the church. There's a spirit of something, right? And it's no different than what they were dealing with. You might say, Lance, I don't have those false gods, and my, my whatever shop doesn't do that in my union hall. Let me tell you this. We all go to a union hall, and at some point, we all have something that says, in order to make it in this world, you must. I get confronted with that too. How much I will soften the message from this platform because it's going to make people happy out there. And I'll tell you, I don't want to do that. And, and, and I'm t- it's, by the way, it scares me because I don't have to give an account for every word that comes out of my mouth. I'm a little more fearful of him than you. For the record. 
just want you to know, it's like all eternity with him. I got a few hours with you. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Whew. The action to be taken, don't let your culture determine what you know to be true. Church number five, the church of Sardis. Sardis was known as a powerful church. It was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world. Uh, literally, uh, gold and silver were minted there in Sardis. It was also known as the city that claimed to discover the dying of wool. Sardis was an interesting place. It was a place that at one point was flourishing in its economy and decided that it wanted to build a temple unto Caesar. Caesar said, sounds like a great idea, no chance, not happening. Sardis was bummed out. Literally, the economy in Sardis crashed. There was nothing going on. And so what happened was the church of Sardis shrunk. It shrunk to a pittance of its normal self. What happened in Sardis was, is there was there was not much going on in the economy, so everyone was walking around discouraged and depressed and hopeless. And, and Jesus literally writes them this. He says in verse chapter 3, verse 1, I know the things you do. I've heard about your reputation for being alive, but instead of being alive, you're dead. Now wake up. Strengthen what little remains. For even what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far more right in the, your deeds are far more right in the sight of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and turn to me again. Unless you do, I will come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief. Yet even Sardis. There are some who have not soiled their garments with evil deeds. They walk they, they will walk with me, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their their names from the book of life, but I will announce them before my father and his angels that are that are mine. Action steps for Sardis was to go back to what you know to be true and what you believed at first. Church of Philadelphia, next church, number six. Not the Eagles that are gonna beat the Patriots today. But nevertheless, so I can tell you this, Philadelphia. This church was an interesting church. It was the only other church like Smyrna that was under persecution, right? So it didn't get rebuked or told not to because it had kind of been thinned out. And all those who were, who were not really walking with God and, and kept on saying, I want a little of God, but a little of my way, literally said, oh, I just want God or nothing else because persecution started to happen in Philadelphia. Revelation 3.8 says this, I know all the things you do and I have opened the door for you that no one can shut. You have little strength, yet you obey my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan, those liars who say that they're Jews but they're not, to come and bow at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love because you have obeyed my commands to persevere. I will protect you from great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Look, I'm coming quickly. Hold to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious become pillars in the temple of God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write my name, I will write my name, I will write my God's name on them. And they will be citizens of the city of my God, the Jerusalem that comes from heaven from my God. And they will have my new name inscribed upon them. Action step to be taken. Remain faithful. This last one, I want to tell you this, was Laodicea. Laodicea. Laodicea was known as the lukewarm church. Lukewarm church. Now keep in mind, they called it the lukewarm church. And some historians tell us it was lukewarm because lukewarm water was what was used to cause you to uh, throw up, right? Lukewarm water would do that. Possible that was happening. Lukewarm salt water would make you throw up. And maybe that's the case. And that was the reason it was written. But I think there was more. Let me tell you this. Laodicea was actually a place that, that had a very poor access to fresh water. 
So what Laodiceans would do is they built a six-mile aqueduct that went from south to north. And in this aqueduct was fresh water from down south, and it would come flowing down cold, beautiful spring water, would come rolling down the aqueduct into Laodicea. This beautiful, cold spring water would come rolling into the city. But after six miles, the cold, rolling spring water would turn lukewarm. Then down up north, there was another city called Hierapolis that also had aqueducts that went from Hierapolis down into Laodicea. Hierapolis was this place where there were these mineral hot springs that people would go and bathe in and be revived and enjoy that. Well, they would funnel water on the aqueduct from Hierapolis, this hot, molten spring or uh, water that would come from these, these deep wells. And literally, they would run all of that hot, bubbling water down to Laodicea. But by the time it got to the city, lukewarm. Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 3, I know all these things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I'd wish that you were one or the other, but since you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth or throw you up. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need anything. But you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy, the, also buy white garments so that you will not be ashamed of your nakedness. And buy ointment for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. I'm the one who corrects and disciplines everyone I love. Be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look here, I stand at the door and knock. If any of you hear me calling, open the door and I'll come in and I'll share a meal with you as friends. I will invite everyone who's victorious to sit with me on the throne. Just as I was victorious, sat at my father's throne. Turn from your indifference. Can I just remind you one more time? I stand at the door and knock. Was written to the church. It wasn't written to the lost. I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door and turn from your indifference, your lukewarmness, I'll come in, Jesus says. He's writing this to us, church. He's writing this to us and he's saying, turn from your indifference. Can I just say this? That literally, this church right here, this Laodicean church was a church that literally walked around looking right, smelling right, feeling right, but on the inside, dead. Can I say today that maybe this represents us? Can I be so bold as to say that these churches represent us? And at every level, we have an opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm giving you all I got or I'm nothing at all. Some of you are experiencing persecution you never thought you had. Some of you have given in to the seduction and the, and the craziness of this culture. Some of you have said, I guess that's just normal. Some of you have said, not on my watch and stood strong and incurred persecution. Can I remind you that this, church, that this letter, church, was written to us uh, just real quickly, I'm going to read through the seven churches and the action steps that should be taken. And I want you to just close your eyes and ask the Lord, which one of these steps out to you? Which one of, you, which one of these truths speak out to you as something God wants you to deal with? To the church of Ephesus, he says, return to me, your first love. The church of Smyrna, remain faithful in persecution. The church of Pergamum, turn away from your compromise. 
The church of Thyatira, don't let your culture determine what you know to be true. Church of Sardis, go back to once you, what you heard and believed in it first. Church of Philadelphia, remain faithful and live life so others can see me. Church of Laodicea, be diligent and turn from your indifference. God, this morning as we read through these churches, we realize how current this message is. That God, though it was happening in Asia Minor back in the first century, 90 AD, God, we find ourselves right smack in the same pool of water in 2018. Lord, we read about prophets and prophetesses and, 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 and truths and, and craziness that was going on in the churches at that time. And we look at them and say, yeah, how crazy it was for them. But God, we see ourselves reflected in this truth. Lord, I pray today that every one of us would stop and recognize the indifference, the compromise, the falling over in the heat of persecution. They're walking away from what we know to be true. God, as indicative of a message straight to us, what is that thing that stands out to you as we read through those today? What, what is the, the challenge that God's saying to you? Come on, stop doing that. Start doing this. Lord, I know we can only truly walk this out by your grace. Maybe you're here today and you have your eyes closed and your head bowed and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. This morning is an opportunity for you to say, Jesus, I need you. If that's you, just say, Jesus, I give my life to you. You got me. I give. Fill me with your spirit. And let's move forward. You're good, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Woo! How about that? There's lots. There's lots to come. Keep coming, man. In the next few weeks, we're going to be here going through this. I can tell you that I have never preached out of the book of Revelation like this. And so it's got me on my toes. And if it gets me on my toes, it'll get your toes too. Because I'm going to deliver it. So just be ready. Um, can I just challenge you? Like I said, come back on Wednesday. And we'll figure out a place that's big enough to house all of us. But just come with questions. And I promise you, we'll do our best to answer them. I think the Bible can give answers for us. And we'll look them up the best we can. Right? And don't forget Saturday, we have the men's breakfast, fellas, so come for that as well. Why don't you stand to your feet? God bless you. Be encouraged today. Why don't you turn to give someone a hug and say, man, that was good.